Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are back in the book of Colossians, and if it's your first time here, welcome. We normally just teach through books of the Bible. We've been out for a little bit, um, had uh, Ben Hardman from a Grace Church come and speak into the life of our church, and then Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and so we're back in this New Testament book um, written by the Apostle Paul, written to a group of Christians living around the area of modern-day Turkey, and I thought it would be helpful for us to maybe just do a little bit of a recap, as it's been a while since since we've been in the book. And the reason why we chose Colossians and the big idea of what we said Colossians is, is this, is that a clear view of Jesus will change your life. That's what we said. That a clear view of Jesus will change your life. And what the book of Colossians does is it sort of zooms out um, and, and looks at a 30,000-foot view of who this Jesus is and what he has done. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those are like many biographies of Jesus and his earthly ministry and life. And then we have Acts, which is sort of the history um, of the church. And then we have what are called the uh, epistles, which is what written by Apostle Paul, Peter, John, and these guys. And what they do is they apply to a local church, the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And we said, listen, if you get a clear view of Jesus, it'll change your life. The writer of the book of Colossians actually uh, was like a modern-day terrorist, was going around arresting Christians, hated Christ. He got a clear view of Jesus, and his life changed. And we said that, that there was a goal in this series, and the goal is twofold. The goal is for people to meet Jesus and to mature in Jesus. And we've had people meet Jesus in this series going, man, I didn't know that that's who Jesus was, that that's what Jesus did. But it's not just to meet Jesus, it's also to mature in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says that's why he's writing the letter. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And we said for those of us who have been walking with Jesus and known Jesus for a while, that that's what we should be doing, that we should be maturing in Jesus. We said this, that a 45-year-old man in the kiddie pool is awkward, okay, and a little bit weird. And we said that for us as Christians, that we should be growing and maturing in our Christ-likeness. And there's really um, three sort of main thrusts um, of the letter of Colossians. The first one is this, 
to reclaim the supremacy of Jesus. That was sort of chapter one. And supremacy means first. It means nothing else above that, that it is first. And we said the reason why it's important is the book of Colossians challenges us. And it does not ask this question, is Jesus important? It doesn't ask that question. I mean, I think in Butler County, you would ask that question, is Jesus important? Amen, brother. Jesus is important. Yes and amen. Paul doesn't ask that question. Supremacy asks this question, is Jesus first? You say that's an entirely different question. If Jesus is important and we go down that route, then we try to sort of add him in our life and in our calendar and in our budget. But if we say that Jesus is first, then everything else in our calendar and our budget gets built around Jesus, that he is supreme, that he's first. The second thing is this, is to rest in the sufficiency of Jesus. One of the reasons why the Apostle Paul was writing this letter was to correct some false teaching that had come into the church. And interesting enough, we learned that that false teaching coming from the enemy doesn't come from a devil with um, you know, horns and a pitchfork, but actually it comes disguised in a little bit of truth. And we said that the sufficiency of Jesus is this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the good news, that, that, that it's only Jesus to have a right standing with God. But what the false teachers were saying was, well, it's Jesus and maybe, you know, obey these rules and this Sabbath and Jesus plus baptism or Jesus plus this or Jesus. It's always these good things that they would add. And we said that idolatry is when you take a good thing and make it a God thing. That's when it becomes a bad thing. We said we need to be on guard for that because our hearts drift towards adding to Jesus. And then the last thing was this, to remember the simplicity of the gospel. That the good news, listen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, that's good news. Listen, that's not something that we hear, John 3, 16, and we're like, yeah, Tim Tebow, amen, man, right? And then we go on to the deeper things of God. No, no, no. The same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sustains us. That this is something that we need every day of our life. We don't move on from that, but we rest and remember the simplicity of the gospel. And then the outline of the book was very important. We said the outline of the book is this. Chapter 1 was like the gospel proclaimed. That was, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, your kids' side kids are learning those verses as a memory passage through the book of Colossians. And, and what the Apostle Paul did in chapter 1 was just proclaim. This is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. This is what God has done. And then in chapter 2, it was like the gospel protected. And, and we said that this is where he sort of corrected the false teaching. It's not Jesus plus, you know, philosophy or Jesus plus rules. That it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But then chapter 3 was a pivotal point in the letter. And chapter 3 and 4 is the gospel practiced. 
And so this week, we're going to see what are the implications for us in our everyday life and for us as a church family. And then next week, he talks about um, married couples, husbands, this is what your role is. Ladies, this is what your role is. Parents, this is what your role is. But what's important about that outline is literally the order of the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. He didn't open the letter, and in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he didn't say, um, forgive each other. And um, if you have a complaint, then do this. And hey, do this. And, and this is the way you're supposed to live. And, and this is the way that you're supposed to behave. He didn't start the letter that way. He started the letter with, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's done. And listen, that is the gospel. That's the order of the gospel. The gospel is not behave and then God will love you. The gospel is believe that God does love you. And we see that in and through the person of Jesus Christ. But chapter 3, verse 1 is the thesis. And we said that we have to read verse 1 every week because that's his thesis. Everything else comes from that. And so this week and next week and one more week, we will read this verse and he says this. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Raised with Christ. We celebrated it last Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, hey, listen, the grave is empty and the throne is occupied. Amen? And that has a profound effect on our lives. That now our identity as Christians is that we are raised with Jesus. That if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Romans chapter 10 verse 9 would say, that you are now a new creation. That to repent of our way of life and to trust God for a new way of life, that now we have a new identity. Maybe this uh, will help. One of the cool things I've found is having ch uh, children and having kids is watching TV shows with them that are spinoffs of TV shows that you watched as a kid growing up, right? So I'm just now starting to experience this, and it's super cool. One of the TV shows um, our kids have been watching is the spinoff of the old Mighty Ducks. Do we remember the Mighty, Duck, uh, Mighty Ducks? I got any 90s kids in here, right? Quack. Quack, quack. Okay, I feel the spirit in here today, right? Okay. But this is uh, sort of a new show, and, and it's great. It's fun. It's got Emilio Estevez in it. And, and the premise of it is, is that uh, the main character, and then that's his mom, he tried out for the Mighty Ducks hockey team, and he didn't make it. He, he essentially wasn't good enough. And, and the mom is a single mom, and she's sort of defending her kid like, my baby's good enough. Let me go up to this coach and see why he didn't make the team. And so the mom asked the coach, um, what can he do to get better and try out next year? And the coach looked at her and said, um, just don't bother. And so she's like, uh-uh, you did not just say that to me, right? So she's like, I'm going to make a, our own team, and we're going to win and do that. And the name of the team is the Don't Bothers. Like, that's the name of the team. So they're this misfit sort of just, you know, ragtag team, and they're going to beat the Mighty Ducks. And she has no idea how to coach or any of that. But in the second episode, before they've ever played a single game, they don't even have, like, gear to play uh, hockey as this team. She has an award ceremony for the kids. 
And like her kid is so embarrassed. He's like, mom, we haven't even played a game yet. And she's handing out awards. She's like the most gold scored this year and handing them out. And the kids are all like kind of embarrassed and stuff. And her son says, mom, we haven't even played a single game yet. I haven't even scored a goal yet. And you're already giving us an award. And the mom said, yeah, I know you haven't yet, but you will. You will. You guys will win. And as I watched that, I thought, that's good news. That's good news. Listen, that's just like the gospel. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we didn't do anything. Listen, the gospel is so much more than just being forgiven. That's a part of it, and that's good news. But we're not just forgiven. Listen, we are rewarded in Christ that we now have a new identity. And what the Apostle Paul does from now on in the letter is, that's no longer your life anymore. That's not who you are. This is who you are. So live this way. And so our big idea in the thesis today is simply this. Who we are affects the way we live. Who we are affects the way we live. Now, the reason why this is so important is because the world and the system of the world would reverse this and say, the way you live and what you do is who you are. I mean, just think about the way that you introduce yourself to somebody. You know, how, you know hey, my name's Jason and I'm a pastor. Or, you know, my name's so-and-so and I work here. We think that we are defined by what we do. Or to put it this way, that our identity is something that we have to achieve, that we have to work at. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that as a Christian, your identity is not something that you achieve. Listen, your identity is something that you receive in Jesus. This is the good news. This is grace. And grace is an unearned gift from an unobligated giver. That we didn't do anything for God to love us, but he set his love on us in Christ. And so what I want to do today is, I just want to break this in two parts. I want to look at who we are and what the passage says about that, and then how we live. And the implications of how we live are in a corporate setting. If you saw in those verses, he's writing to a church. He's writing to Christians. And he's saying, hey, if you're a member of the church of Jesus Christ, this is how you're supposed to live. But first, we start with our identity, who we are. And look at verse 12. He says this, put on then. So we've learned about that. What he says is our old way of life we need to put off. And we sort of had that kind of strong message about there's some things as Christians that we don't play with, that we don't mess around with, because that's not who we are. That's not our identity anymore, that we put those things off, that we're dead to those things. But then there's some things that we put on. And he says we put on, but before he does that, he gives us these three identity statements, and I just want to take them one at a time. The first one is this, put on then as God's chosen ones, who we are. The first thing is this, we are chosen by God. This is incredible news. 
Um, and now listen, this is a doctrine that's a little bit controversial. It's the doctrine of known as the doctrine of election. Now, now, before people are like, well, predestination and election, I don't believe in none of that stuff. Well, number one, the Bible uses these words, okay? So number one, you're mean, okay? And we need to know what these mean because the odds are is, is that you believe, you don't believe in something that was taught wrongly to you. But the Bible loves having this tension. And so when it comes to our salvation, oftentimes people are like, well, I chose Jesus. And then there's another group of people that are like, "Eh, uh-uh, you didn't choose Jesus. Um, God chose you. And they're like, nah, we've got free will. And listen, by the way, the only group of people that have a problem with this are Western Americans, right? Because of our rights and our voting and voting. How's that going, by the way, the whole voting thing, right? Oh, that's a different sermon. Okay, I'm not going to get on that, right? But listen, when it comes to our salvation, the Bible speaks of this great profound mystery that God chose us. Why? Why? Was it because um, God looked through the corridor of time and knew that we would choose him, so he chose us, or because we would do good things, God chose us? Um, We're reading through the Bible together as a church through our Bible reading plan. And a couple of weeks ago, we read through the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. And God speaks to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy and says these words. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, here it is, set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Translation, why did God choose us and set his love for us? Not because you're awesome. Nope, you're not awesome. Welcome to Westside. Glad you're here today, okay? You're not awesome. God's awesome. And that was his display to show the world that he was going to take this small group of people and set his love and affection on them and that all other nations would know that he is the true God by the people of Israel. And listen, Jesus would say later on in John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus would say these words, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Any questions? Right? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, that he may give it to you. Now, if you know your Bible, you should be arguing with me a little bit and and have some questions. You're saying, Jason, you're saying that the Bible says that God chose us and that no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him, John 6, 44. But then in Matthew 11, Jesus gives a free invitation and says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It seems to be that Jesus is giving us a choice or an option. So what does it mean? Did, did God choose us or did we choose God or this, that, and the other? And I thought it would be helpful, you know, God forbid we come to church and we actually learn something, right? But when it comes to um, salvation, okay? So when the Bible talks of salvation, okay, I'm hooked on phonics, okay? I went to public school. So if I misspell, just give me grace today, right? Listen, when the Bible speaks of salvation, it speaks of it in three ways, past, present, and future. And oftentimes in Butler County, or maybe you grew up in, you know, you had a grandma or something that was like, are you saved? 
Are you saved? Are you washed in the blood? Are you saved? Like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? Well, the Bible uses the terminology of salvation in a number of ways, but think about it this way. If you held a diamond, a single stone, up to the light, you get multiple colors from one stone, right? From different facets. That's the way the Bible speaks about salvation. It's one concept that you can come at it from a number of angles. And when you think about salvation, I want you to think of it as sort of like a filing cabinet that has separate files in it. So, so the drawer is salvation, but salvation has a number of things. Um, the first thing in salvation is what we just saw, which is election. This is God's mysterious plan, okay? Um, I, don't, I can't solve the tension on this. Ephesians chapter 1, that our salvation was predetermined before the foundations of the world. In the book of Revelation, it says that there's a Lamb's book of life, and all of those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ had their name written in that book before the universe was even created. Okay? Like, I, I, I just, I can't solve that tension. But here's what I'm not going to do. I am not going to either A, try to fit everything in a nice little theological box, okay? So there's some frameworks, whether it be Calvinism or Arminianism, that tries to justify everything and explain everything. And logically, I can do this and I can take you here and we can do this and we can do that. Here's a great verse for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Do not exceed what is written. Do not exceed what is written, your Bible. Don't go beyond what's in your Bible. And oftentimes what theological frameworks like to do is they like to go what is be beyond what is written and explain things in little logical boxes. Listen, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not opposed to each other. They are two parallel tracks that meet in the mind of God. It is a great mystery, but it is a tension that we will hold. So this is salvation being planned for us. What I believe the Bible teaches is that God chooses us and then we choose him in response. That God is the initiator and we are the responders. Because, I mean, think about it. How do you pray uh, for lost people? You know, because now people are like, well, does that mean that I don't have free will? And what's this about free will and this, that, and the other? Well, number one, your will is a lot more limited than what you give credit, right? Will yourself to be eight feet tall right now. Will yourself to lose 20 pounds. Some of y'all are like, I'm actually willing to do that right now. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. So, so now what we've just done is we've shrunk your will a little bit more. Okay. Number two, salvation is of the Lord. Guys, we don't go down to the local gas station, get a cup of coffee, a full tank of gas, and salvation. Salvation is something that God does. It is not the work of man. And so when we're praying for our lost friends and family, what do we pray? We don't just pray a wish. God, I, I wish and hope that they'll choose you someday. What do we pray? God, save them. God, save them. God, open up their heart and mind to the good news. Um, I saw this literally illustrated last weekend when it comes to this idea of election and God setting his love on us. 
Um, after the big Easter celebration, we were hanging out with family, and I was going over to a family member's house, and we had a ton of family there, and I got a text message that said, hey, when you pull into the driveway, be careful, the kids are riding their bikes, okay? So I'm pulling in, and it's slow, and I see the kids on their bikes, and I see, you know, the, the smallest family member there, and he's got his mom and dad there, and I see him looking up at his mom and then looking at the road. And looking up at his mom and then looking at the road. And you know what he's doing? He's seeing, like, can I do this, right? Can I steal first without mom snatching me before I run out into the road? And I saw it happen. I saw him look at his mama and then bolt right out into the road. And then that's when daddy stepped into the picture. And dad swooped in like a hawk swooped in to snatch something out of the field and did just what it's... It's what I call dad strength. It's just that one-handed scoop him up, right, and did all of that. Now, what happened? What did mom and dad not do? Well, we want you to have your little free will and make your choice. And what we want you to do is to choose every... What did dad do? Dad snatched that baby up out of danger, right? Now, listen. What the Bible teaches is what our Heavenly Father does is He sets His love on you. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of how gracious and loving He is. Listen, salvation is of the Lord. It's election, but then it's also this. Justification. Okay? To be justified. What is it to be justified? Well, it's not Justin Timberlake's solo album, which was a really good album, okay? Right, I think you should listen to that, okay? Listen, it's election, and then what is justification? Justification is to be justified, the act of being made right before God. Well, who does that? Jesus did that on the cross, that's what we celebrate on Good Friday is that Jesus paid for our sins, atoned for our sins on the cross, and then three days later rose again. By the way, when Jesus did that, that meant that Jesus paid for all sins, past, future, and present, correct? Because we weren't born and we weren't around yet when Jesus paid for sin. He paid for all the sins in the Old Testament and for all future sins as well. And what happens when somebody, when we say, is quote-unquote saved, is their heart and mind has been now opened by the power of the Holy Spirit to the concept of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And then that leads out... Sanctification. And then what you need to do is just have bad handwriting and then just do that, right? Okay? Listen, what this is called, this is the doctrine of soteriology. Okay? Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. There's two views of it. The monergism, which is one, or synergism, which is partnership. And so in seminaries and uh, big Bible schools, they're like, well, the doctrine of soteriology teaches that through monergism and synergism, and I'm, I'm saving you like 10 grand from seminary right now free, Okay? And what now happens in our life is what's called sanctification. This is God planning salvation. This is God paying for salvation. 
This is God applying salvation. This is us becoming more and more like Jesus every single day of our life. This is us maturing in Christ. This is us finding out about our spiritual gifts. This is us serving. This is us forgiving. This is what we see in the passage today is marks of sanctification. Here's what's so important about this order. If you reverse this order, you reverse the gospel. And this is what a lot of churches and a lot of Christians do. They say, we know that God plans salvation, but in order for you to be quote-unquote saved and to be right before God, we need to see that evidence in your life. So, it's behave first. Behave. And then you're made right with God. Wrong. False gospel. Paul addresses that in the book of Galatians. It is not behave. Listen, the gospel is one thing. Believe. It's believe. That's what it is. And then through that belief, our life is changed. So maybe you grew up in a background that said in order to be made right with God, you need to be baptized or you need to speak in tongues or you need to do all of this. Listen, I have so many conversations. I'll never forget having a conversation with a lady And we were talking about the goodness of Jesus and what Jesus had done for her in her life. And then right at the end of the conversation, her eyes filled up with big tears. And she said, but you know, Pastor, I know that I don't have the Holy Spirit because I've never spoken tongues. And my heart just broke for her. And I said, oh, please listen. That's somebody who taught you that went beyond what is written Listen, there is no prerequisite for salvation. The only prerequisite for salvation is the sin that you contributed to salvation. That's it. And then after that's applied to our life, then we see maybe it's the manifestation of those gifts. And then it's the act of baptism and this, that, and the other. But we cannot reverse this order. And then the last thing that we see in the filing cabinet is this. Glorification. And glorification is being saved from the very presence of sin. That's when Jesus comes back and the sky splits and the trumpet sounds and he says, behold, I am making all things new. Listen, this is the good news of salvation, that God planned it, that Jesus paid for it, that the Holy Spirit applies it, and then God is coming back for those that are his. This is the hope that we have every day of our life. Now, I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, wow, that's great, and we learned something today, and I learned some $2 words, and I can sound fancy, but pastor, um, tomorrow's Monday, and the job, and my marriage, and what, what does this mean? Listen, theology should always lead to practice. We don't just sit around with that whiteboard and discuss deep things so we can argue with people on Facebook about that. It should do something to your life. And the reason why understanding this identity of being chosen by God is so important is this. That if I didn't do anything for God to choose me and to love me, then how can I ever do anything to make God unlove me? 
Listen, I, and I know there's a tension. I know what some of you are saying. Oh, boy, I know people doing this and living this way. And listen, when you preach this, people always say, well, then people are going to live like hell and think that they're going to go to heaven. No, the Apostle Paul says, do we sin now that grace may abound? By heavens, no. When we know this now, this not only gives us pardon from sin, but listen, this gives us power to not sin. That now we can slay that temptation that is in our life. And now I'm free every day of my life that I don't have to worry about, am I going to do something that makes God not love me anymore? Because I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And neither depth, nor height, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor nakedness, nor family nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Are you with me today, guys? This is good news for us. God has set his love on us, not because of anything we've done, but because of how good he is. So now in my relationships, I don't have to be filled with anxiety and project that anxiety onto other relationships because deep down inside I have an anxiety that I don't know if I'm right with God. I love the way that Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never have chose him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chose me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love and said, you are mine. You are mine. This is the good news. This is our identity, that we're loved by God. And the second thing is this, we're not just chosen, but we are changing. That was just the first phrase, guys, chosen ones. And then here's the second one, holy. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy. Remember, we learned about this in chapter one when Paul writes to them and says that to the saints in Colossae. Remember what we're supposed to do every time we see Paul call somebody holy or saints? Do you remember? Oh, yes, gasp. Okay, so I'm going to do it again, all right? I'm going to say holy, and I want you to gasp. Are you with me? Here we go. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy. Holy, right? Holy means separate, distinct, set apart. But the funny thing is, is that they're far from actually being practically holy every day of their life. But what we said the good news is, is because of what Jesus has done, when God looks upon our life, he doesn't see the sin, the failures, the temptation. He sees Jesus. And then in our life, when that identity starts to set in and drop, listen, I believe most Christians live this with a head knowledge. They don't live this with a heart knowledge. And when this drops from your head to your heart, there is a freedom in your life. Listen, to be holy and to be changing is this. Holiness isn't just about leaving sin behind. Holiness is about loving Jesus more. 
That's what holiness is about. And listen, maybe you grew up like I did with sort of a holiness background, and it was focused on what we don't do and what we leave behind. And listen, by the way, some of those things need to be left behind, and that's really, really good advice. And there's a lot of stuff that we don't need to be messing with, okay? We talked about that. We discussed all those things. I just, like, you just don't need to be at a bar at 2 a.m. Just nothing good is going down, okay? And then you're like, I can't believe this happened. I can, okay, right? I can. We talked about the guy who, you know, got the uh, DWI and said, I can't believe God's doing this to me. Um, correction. You drank 14 beers and drove your car, okay? The only thing that God did do was spare your life, all right? So there are things that we need to leave behind, but that's not what the Christian life is about. That's not the whole thing, man. It's about loving Jesus more. Listen, do you love Jesus? Reading our Bibles and, and come, do you know why we come and gather the first day of the week as the text was read? Because this is the day that Jesus rose. And why do we come and gather and read these scriptures and sing these songs? To remember who we are to remember who we are. That's why the singing psalms back and forth and doing this, what's that all about? It's retelling the gospel story. Do you love Jesus? Listen, we're chosen, we're changing, and then this, we're cherished. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, here it is, and beloved. I love that word, beloved. It means to have God's love set upon you. And, and I thought, so many Christians don't live that way. Because when they think church and they think Jesus, they don't think beloved. Well, let's put it this way. Um, the gospel says that you are beloved. Religion says that you are belittled. And unfortunately, when people think about church and they think about Christians and they think about the Bible, they think about how they don't measure up and they feel belittled. Listen, the Apostle Paul is reminding them of their identity and who they are. And then the second thing that we see is this, and we'll run through these quickly. Now we see how we live. Do you see what we just had to do? We had to do all of that before now we get to the stuff that you have been like, yeah, yeah, forgiving each other, having a complaint, doing all of that. Listen, we can't get to that until we understand our identity and who we are. So now, how do we live? Now look at this. This is Paul writing to a corporate group of Christians. Um, the yous in this passage are a plural. So it actually means y'all, you know, in that southern twang, if you will, right? This is community. This is how we're supposed to live as a church. And how are we supposed to do that? Well, the first thing is this. Bearing with one another. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility meekness, patience, bearing with one another. It's actually in reverse. So if you look at verse 13 and it says, bearing with one another, you should ask, how can I do that? Well, look at the preceding words. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Interesting, the word humility that the Apostle Paul uses there. Until the Bible was written, that Greek word for humility was always used in a negative sense in ancient Greek literature. It was always bad. It was never good. 
It was like, well, this person is this, that, and humble or humility. It, it, it showed back then a sign of weakness because, I mean, if you look at the Roman Empire, you ruled by strength and by power and by making a point and declaring with all authority and doing all of that. And then the Apostle Paul says, um, yeah, if you bring that mindset over into your relationships, you won't have any relationships. Because we say it this way, you can either make a point or you can make a difference, but you can't make both. And so when we bear with one another as a church, what we're doing is we're putting on compassion and hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. By the way, with one another. And then he goes on and says this, Verse 13, look at your Bible. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. Now, follow me on this logic here, okay? If the Apostle Paul is writing to a New Testament church of Christians, and he is saying, if a complaint happens, you need to forgive each other. And later on in some verses, we're going to see that he even calls people out by name. If that happened then when everything was quote-unquote supposed to be perfect in our mind when we read the Bible, right? Then do you think that there's going to be complaints and conflicts in the church present day now? Yes. Yes. But we're so astonished when it happens. It's because we have unreal expectations as to what it is to be a part of a church. He's writing this to Christians And then what do Christians most of the time do whenever this happens within the context of a local church? Bail. Leave. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian during World War II. He's a profound theologian. And he actually was executed by the Nazi regime. And he wrote a little booklet called uh, Life Together. And he says these words in it. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. That's as simple as it is. Listen, I don't know what your expectations are, and I don't know what you think it is to be a Christian and to be a part of a local church, but, oh, please, dear Lord, if you have expectations that Westside's going to be some perfect church or this, that, and the other, listen, that couldn't be further from the truth. Listen, I think we're a good church, and I think we're trying the best we can to stick to this book. But at the end of the day, as Spurgeon would say, there is no perfect church, and if you find it, dear friend, please don't join it because you will ruin it, okay? Because we're all sinners. But this is what it looks like to live this life together in light of this identity. We bear with one another. We forgive one another. Uh, The next thing, we, we love one another. I love this. Above all of these put on love. Above all of these put on love. Hey, hey, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? Is it doctrine? Is it serving? Is it the music? Is it the preaching? Is it the kids program? Is it the this? Is it the that? Above all, put on love. Listen, there are no lasting and enduring relationships without forgiveness and without love. It'll never happen. So we're not just loving each other, but then we're also serving one another. 
And that's what he says down in the passage when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing the psalms and the hymns and all of that. Now, what does this have to do with us? If, if we're to live life this way, what does this do for us? Listen, please don't miss this. Once you understand your identity and who you are and to be secure in Christ, listen, look up here, don't miss this. Then you realize this profound truth that it's not about you. That it's not about you. So now whenever you drive by, uh, you know, T.O.'s and you see your group meeting out there and you were like, well, nobody called me and invited me to go or they did this or they said this. And what we project onto all of our relationships is this internal anxiety that we have because deep down inside, everybody in the room is asking the same question and it's this, will you fully know me and will you fully love me? Will you fully know me and will you fully love me? And what the church of Jesus Christ says wholeheartedly is yes. And it's going to be messy. And it's going to be hard because we're going to have to bear with one another. And we're going to have to forgive each other. And we're going to have to love each other. And we're going to have to serve each other. But we're never giving up on each other. Like, like when are you giving up on Bill? Never. When are you giving up on Susie? Never. Because listen, Jesus never gave up on us. So in closing, we have to understand this. Who we are affects how we live. So how does this affect you? Maybe for some of us in the room today, it corrects some unreal expectations that we had. And maybe the disappointments and the frustrations that you feel in the relationships that you have now are actually just fruit of unreal expectations. Or maybe for some of us in the room today, it is the good news to know this, that you didn't do anything for God to love you. And you can rest in the security that there's nothing that you can do to make him unlove you today. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you so grateful for this good news. God, I pray that Westside would be this church. God, I pray that Westside would be a church that knows its identity that knows who we are in you, Jesus. Yes, these doctrines sometimes stretch our mind and sometimes it's hard to understand, but at the end of the day, when we grasp these truths, we find so much freedom, so much freedom to know that it's not about us anymore because God, it's so exhausting in our lives to constantly be the person in the prominent position to constantly be the person to cast judgment, to constantly be the person who says, this is how this should go, and to critique this and to do that. God, may you begin to destroy superficial relationships in this church. We will not have it. God, we pray against the enemy, his workers and their effects. The enemy would love nothing more than for Westside to be filled with just superficial relationships. But may the knowledge of who we are drop from our head down to our heart. And then may we begin to bear with one another, to walk in circumstances in life with each other, to forgive each other. God, there's people in this room who are brothers and sisters in Christ 
who have ought in a relationship. God, may you begin to work in their heart and mind because what we know is this, God, is that we don't bail, that we don't leave, that we don't run the other way because you didn't give up on us, but you kept chasing us and you kept pursuing us. And then finally you snatched us and said, you are mine and I am setting my love on you. And it's changed us. Holy Spirit, have your way with us in this place. Comfort those that need comforting. Convict those that need convicting. And compel us today towards the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray this all in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ.